welcome to another episode of Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff. I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University, but I've been known to cosplay as DC Comics Dr. Light. You can check out the images in our Instagram. I do this at various cons in Seattle, and I suggest you take a little time to look up this obscure astrophysicist Justice League member. One of the cons we keep coming back to is Geek Girl Con. And this is the second episode from that trip. Every year, there are tons of people of all ages in costumes. And there's also a DIY science zone created by Dr. Rachel Burks. You can check out her interview in our season four. At Geek Girl Con, we get the opportunity to interview scientists, engineers, and mathematicians who take time to volunteer in that DIY zone. In this episode, we interview a cosplaying chemist, an engineer in grad school, and an artist that paints astronomy as accurately as she can. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm so excited because we're back at Geek Girl Con and I'm talking with one of the best cosplayers I've probably ever seen. I'm gonna let you introduce yourself and then I'm gonna talk about all the cosplay and, and the science that you do at Shoreline Community College. My name is Tori Stenmark. I am a adjunct instructor at Shoreline Community College where I teach chemistry and I am a cosplayer and costumer of everything. <laughs> so the first time I saw you, I think it was of Captain Marvel. Sounds right. And uh, you've been Miss Frizzle. Right now you are Emma Frost. Mm -hmm. And I think all of these people have, in my opinion, STEM, some STEM association, right? Like Captain Marvel did aeronautics. Sure, sure. And Emma Frost controls phase changes. Right. And Miss Frizzle is a science teacher. So what other costumes am I missing because you're just you're a staple at the DIY zone you're always there you're always can be you know I can see you in your new costume every year so tell me other ones I'm missing uh let's see I have a lot of Star Wars costumes so I have a couple different versions of a Jedi Knight I have uh, Princess Leia and Senator Padme Amidala done some Star Trek I've also done some Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. my recent really big project was Galadriel from the way she appears in the Hobbit movie, mm -hmm. or the first okay. one. So it's this six foot long train on a gown. It's all covered in sparkles and rhinestones and everything. And it's very <sighs> delicate and ethereal. And that was a really fun, that was my latest big project that I finished up. You just commit, like, <laughs> you really do. But do your students, so you're, you know, you're teaching chemistry, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You're teaching these chemistry courses in college. And do they know that you do this? More or less, yeah. So this quarter, it's it's easy because it's Halloween. I always wear one of my costumes to Halloween. So this year, I came to teach class as a Jedi Master on Harat for Kyo. I have no idea who that is. It's an original character. Okay. So one of the other things that I've started doing, I think since the last time we talked, is volunteering with a group called Saber Guild. Okay. Saber Guild is sort of like, you might have heard of the 501st Legion or the Rebel Legion, the big Star Wars costuming groups right. um, that are recognized by Lucasfilm. Saber Guild is affiliated with those, but what we do is we dress up as Jedi and Sith, and we do lightsaber choreography. So I have a couple different versions of original Jedi characters. They clearly belong in Star Wars, but the name is sort of original. And I've been really enjoying that as a way to kind of give back to the community and a way to have a ton of fun and get a good workout. Well, I mean, if you make an original character, then mm -hmm. no one else can be you, right? right. I mean, exactly. Like, so I get to bring my own take on what it means. How do I want to be a Jedi Knight? Like, yeah. you know, we all have the same world we're playing in, but I get to put my own personal spin on it, and that's really fun. It's like visual fan fiction. It is. It yeah. is. It's it's not quite You're a pioneer, LARPing, but it's a little bit like LARPing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so I'm going to take a step back. When you were an undergrad and you were picking your major and wanting to go into, I'm guessing, something STEM-like, what drew you to chemistry? I'm not sure I remember (laughs) because I knew in first grade, I knew I wanted to be a scientist. Like literally I did a project. What am I going to do when I grow up? I'm going to be a scientist. But what I can tell you is why I decided to go into organic chemistry specifically. Organic chemistry is about understanding why things happen. Right. And I think that that's... Like a process. It's a process, very process-based, very mechanism-based. How do the molecules fit together on a big, complicated scale? And I think it's one of those things where either you, you hit that and your brain goes, oh my gosh, this is amazing, I want to know more. Or you just go, what? And yeah. you can't, it's just such a gear change. It either works incredibly well for you or it doesn't. And I think it just doesn't for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I do sometimes get to teach OCHEM and I try to present it in as accessible and interesting a way as possible. And always work, right? Nothing's ever going to be perfect. Yeah. But I try to make it as interesting as I can and try to really get people to, to care about it and try to show them why I care about it. And that's why I ended up in OCHEM is, is I had that moment where I was, I was a biochem major in undergrad at Colorado College. And so I'm taking my required organic chemistry class. And uh, the teacher's putting up some big complicated synthesis on the board. So she's showing, you know, this thing turns into this thing, into this thing, you know, 10 steps down the road, you get to your final product. And I remember watching her do that and just being like, that's so cool. I want to do that. Yeah. And that's why I ended up going into OCHEM is, is just that instant moment of, wow, this is great. I, I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm feeling with like your cosplay and what you just said, it just feels makes me feel like you like to build things. You like things that build on each and, and on yeah. each other, right? Or that yeah. there's like a sequence of events. And I think when you're when you're building your costumes, when you're building your classes and your curriculum, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it like you want things to kind of flow, right? Yeah. yeah. Same thing with cooking. I do a lot of cooking uh, <laughs> when I can, and it's very similar. And honestly, because cooking is chemistry, it's right. just a question of like, can you lick the spoon? Uh, Cooking, yes. Chemistry, no. Please do not lick the spoon in a chem lab. (laughs) Right. Tell me a little bit about how long you've been working with Geek Girl Con and and been on the floor and what what do you see? What's the most interesting stuff that you've experienced here at Geek Girl Con? Sure. So I've been attending Geek Girl Con since the first one. This is our ninth. So I was an attendee the first couple years and the DIY Science Zone is in its seventh year. So that would have been, you know, third year of the con. Dr. Rachel Burks was starting this up. And I remember seeing her, you know, seeing talk about looking for help. And so I showed up and was like, can I help? I want to help. How do I get involved in this? And I think the fourth year, so the second year was the first year I was actually like hands on doing stuff and ended up because I live in the Seattle area and Ray lives in, currently she lives down in Texas. They kind of need somebody in the Seattle area to help, you know, come to the con meetings and, you know, receive packages and stuff like that. So that's Mm kind of how I got into volunteering with the science. I've been doing it every year since. So it's been interesting to watch Geek Girl Con grow and change. Watching the con be a really safe space for people. One of my favorite things has been, so I love seeing girls that are interested in science, but the more number of kids we've been starting to see with the they, them pronoun buttons mm-hmm. has been really cool. You see kids who seem to be presenting, you know, maybe they have a he, him button, but they're wearing a dress. Right. Haircuts that appear to present differently than you know, what, you, what you'd expect for them, what their assigned gender seems to be. And it's just been a delight of this being a safe space for people to explore. And that's one of the things that makes Geek Girl Con really special is that we're always clear that like, yeah, it's a celebration of the female geek. That's still our tagline. 
it's not women only. It's never been women only. And to sort of watch that expand and watch people realize, yeah, this is a cool, safe space to be who I am. Mm-hmm. That's really important to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally noticed that, too. I, I was telling Aaron, like, all, all those kids here look so happy. And, right? and and there was a point in my my... I was sitting there waiting for my my sister to get here, and I was watching this young kid. And again, you're right; I mm-hmm. don't have no idea who, what their pronouns were. But I'm like, that could have been me. Like that, I could totally could have seen me at that age. Like they looked like 14 or something, just having just a ball here, you know. And you're right; like you're you're not super weird. Like I feel mm-hmm. like if you are not dressed up in a costume <laughs> and like you are exactly what you seem to be, that is almost odd here <laughs> like like that is not usually what you're gonna see here you get yeah. and like some people are in full-on cosplay specific characters like all of us and some people are just wearing you know this uh, weird out you know i saw yeah, a gal a walking by that was wearing a, a, a not v tail from avatar regular clothes otherwise but she had this <laughs> blue stripy tail going on it right. was super cute you can do anything yeah 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 and that's so. and it and it's totally accepted here and mm-hmm. if not celebrated here we always talk about pop culture we kind of already did but can you think of any other representation of a chemist that is really good i usually ask really good or really bad but this is a joyous <laughs> you know place so let's just say a really good representation of chemistry or a chemist in like media like music you know, TV, comics, film, something like that. What comes to mind first, it's not quite chemistry, but it is science, is, was it last year now? The big movie of A Wrinkle in Time came out. Mm -hmm. And there was that scene where Meg, who is played by a young black girl, is talking with her dad, and her dad's a scientist, and and he's not a chemist, he's some sort of weird astrophysics flavor. I I don't remember the (laughs) details. And it's all, you know, it's it's impossible tesseracts anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But so he's, you know, and and he's encouraging her. And I was watching that as a, you know, I'm a couple days shy of 36 now, and so I was watching that as an adult woman, watching this little girl with her dad encouraging her and I and and knowing what he's talking about and I almost cried in the theater and it's not that my parents weren't loving and encouraging because they were but they're not chemists they're not scientists in this quite the same way Um, and it was beautiful for me as an adult white woman and I can't imagine what it would be like (laughs) for a young black girl to see herself so directly represented and that was gorgeous and we get a lot of kids who are excited about stuff, and I've gotten girls who say that they want to be scientists, and I'm always very encouraging and stuff. And that's part of why the Science Zone avatar is Dr. May. May Jemison. Stand up, yeah. We, she's named after May Jemison. She's a magical girl, uh, African American, with big Afro puffs for her hair, um, and she's super adorable. And we do pins, and people love her. Yeah. Particularly, we make sure that little little girls who look like that go home with pins that have you know their face or mm-hmm. approximately their face on them, and say, "Yes, you are part of science. We want you here in science. We want you to have fun." Yeah. And hey, if they just come and they just want to cover themselves in glitter and call it a day, that's good too. Like That happens too. I want them to come learn science. That's my kid. But I'm happy if they just have fun. <laughs> so we've been asking, this is kind of our closing questions about if you can give us a or a couple fun facts. So like kind of squashing misconceptions, either of those. So for instance, I think I was... What was the fun fact engineering thing I was... Oh, somebody the was building. like, there there are no fun facts about engineering. <laughs> she didn't say that, but she was like, I don't like. Give me an example. And I was talking about like Taipei 101 and the damper baby. Do you know what those are? 
Baby so John, Taipei 101 is uh, used to be one of the tallest buildings in the world. It's, is, is that the big spheres that hang back and forth? That move yes. Back and forth? Okay, yes. I, did, I didn't know it was called a, a babe, damper baby. That's but what they call that. it in, okay. in Taipei 101. I don't think every engineer <laughs> calls it that or even other buildings outside of that, of yeah, Taipei yeah. 101. But yeah, that massive sphere that is in the building so that when big winds come or an earthquake, those movements don't create resonance with, yeah. the, with the building yeah. and the you know it makes it so the building doesn't sway too much and get crazy and break windows and fall over and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, like, a fun fact like that. A fun fact like that yeah. about chemistry. Something you tell at dinner parties to impress people. <laughs> people are not impressed by me at dinner parties. Oh, that's not I don't know. I mean, my standard my standard trivia question uh, yeah. is... Yeah, we'll call it that standard trivia, trivia question. question. I like yeah, it. Yeah, which is actually my dad's favorite, and I, I borrowed it from him, is who is the last person on the moon? It's actually really interesting because Apollo 17, which is our, our last crewed mission to the moon had the only actual scientist that went to the moon. They ran half a dozen missions, and they sent up like 18 people, 12 people have walked on the lunar surface. I did not even know that. I am also a really big space nerd. Like that is one of my other really big things. Tell me all these Um, facts. How long do you have? (laughs) But Apollo 17, they sent up a geologist. Yeah. The only one they sent up an actual PhD scientist, and he got to do a whole bunch of really cool science and stuff like that. That was Dr. Harrison Schmidt. He was the lunar module pilot, so he was the first one back into the unit. The last human to walk on the moon so far was the commander of the mission, uh, Eugene Cernan. Sticking with the theme of visual arts and STEM, our next guest is an engineering graduate student who will talk to us about augmented reality. Hey, nice talking to you guys. I'm Zhe Yi. I'm a fifth year PhD student at the University of Washington, currently pursuing a major in electrical engineering. And I'm actually a volunteer with Pacific Science Center for five years. And I camp here almost every year because I think this is a really nice activity with lots of young kids, especially lots of girls who have like passion in geek culture and including science and engineering field. I hope to use this chance to show them how wonderful science and technology can be. And hopefully one day some of them will go into the STEM field and some of them will support the STEM field in many other ways. Yeah. So... I always try to like um, explain STEM. I, I always assume people know what STEM <laughs> oh, means. Oh, sorry. But no, no, it's okay. And I remember being at work, and I, you know, I teach in physics and astronomy, and I remember somebody being like, "What does STEM mean?" One of my students, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, so, you know, science, technology, engineering, math." And I want to admit to you, Jiyi, yes. that I don't talk to enough enough engineers on oh, the show. Okay. I don't. I don't even talk to enough mathematicians. It's all science, science, science. Because I'm a physicist and I think we're egotistical. And we only want to talk to people like us. So I, I want to thank you for talking to me. We talked a little bit before and you were telling me about your dissertation. So mm-hmm. for our listeners, can you explain what kind of engineering you do for your PhD and you're almost done? Oh, yes. Hopefully I'm almost done, I say. Yeah. So in my major of electrical engineering, we have many fields. And my particular field involving the design and fabrication, which is building of various small electronics devices that will move, if we have any kind of movement, which can include um, telecommunication devices, any sensors in your laptop or phones, uh, any biomedical devices, or any robotics parts. And my specific field involves the design of a tunable lens 
to be used in either biomedical uh, imaging system or AR VR system, which are augmented reality or virtual reality systems, kind of a big or uh, let's say popular field of entertainment in the near future. Yeah, and we we were talking about AR and VR, and for our listeners, could you give like a distinction between what is VR virtual reality and how is that different from AR augmented reality?、Mm-hmm. So the difference is actually quite literal in the name. Let's say VR first, virtual reality. Reality virtual means it's kind of a man-made environment, and in virtual reality system, you don't see the real world. Technically, you should not feel the real world as well. You are immersed in a totally artificial environment and feeling what the computer is generated for you. But for augmented reality, the virtual part is still there, but it's only part of the system. The majority part will still be a real environment, and the computer system should superimpose a virtual object or virtual system on top. Of the real environment around you, so it's kind of like a different application and have different technology requirements. I remember talking to you earlier, and you said the AR is more useful. Can you tell us more about what,、mm. what you meant by that? Yeah, I mean, when I say AR is more useful, I mean more in a business or technology side. Of course, VR is really useful as well. We have VR. In my opinion, current technology for VR is more for entertainment or for educational purpose to bring you into a different world. But AR, it can combine virtual environment into reality, so you can use the AR system to when you are working in a real world. Like it can be a system program for your work, for your education, for your study. So. For AR, one example I really like, I'm more close to people's life is I know someone is developing programs. I think they're in market already to help you choose your clothes or choose your furniture. So the advance of AR system is you will see yourself in the picture. It's just a live image of yourself, or it's a live image of your room, and then it can superimpose a picture of the new clothes in onto your body, or superimpose a 3D image of furniture in your room. So you can actually see the future object you may process will look like in your current environment. And I think that's really useful for people's everyday life. And that's what. People are trying to do, trying to make AR system available for majority of the public. I remember talking to a computer scientist, and he we started talking about Pokemon Go,、mm, and、yeah. I was like, Pokemon Go is like AR, and he's like, that's not AR. What is your opinion? Do you think Pokemon Go superimposing like images, and you're trying to find that you know catch that Pokemon in your phone? That's not the same thing as AR. Wow,、yeah. I don't want to go against computer science. No, see, I'm not from computer science major. I have only basics of computer science or image processing. But in my opinion, I think he may be true because he's looking at much higher level understanding of what augmented reality. But I feel like, in my opinion, just for public, you can see、um, Pokemon Go as a basic AR system. Because if you turn on the AR camera, there's a function in the program.、Yeah. You will have a Pokemon, which is artificial object, to a live image of your real environment.、Mm-hmm. So from the fundamental level, that is an AR system. I agree with you. I know, right? <laughs> I know, but if you're a computer scientist, you can totally don't agree with me、yeah. because. In the real AR system, your AR object should interact with your environment instead of just being a superimposed picture onto your environment. I do want to get into your dissertation. You were saying that you're dealing with lenses,、mm-hmm. and I remember talking to you earlier about helping with AR and VR because you want to turn 2D images into something that feels more 3D.、Yes. 
So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like if you're trying to explain how to do that to a non-electrical engineer or computer scientist, apparently. It's about how we perceive a 3D object. As human beings, we have two ways of perceiving depth information in our environment. One is accommodation, it's how your lens in your eye is tuning. And the other one is... Parallax, right? Yes. Yes! You got it? Astronomy! I was yeah, like, oh, I, didn't, yeah, I didn't even let G finish. I was like, parallax. <laughs> yes, it's the same thing. It's both in use astronomy and using your biology in terms of how your eyeball moves when you look at a different object. You have two systems, parallax, how your eyeball is moving physically, and the accommodation, how your lens is yeah. contracting or relaxing when you're looking at an uh, object at a different distance. And your brain uses these two information to have uh, full depth information in your perception. For the current VR system that I know, people usually do 2D image a set of 2D image to give you an illusion that you are looking at the VR system. But the problem is here you only have the parallax effect and your mm-hmm. lens won't accommodate to the picture because the picture is always on a screen that is at a certain distance from you and your mm-hmm. eye won't accommodate no matter what image is showing. So for our listeners, we, we'll just explain parallax real yeah. quick. So like if you were to look at like an exit sign mm-hmm. in a room, you point at that exit sign with your finger, you cover one eye, you know, cover one eye, look at the, your finger and then cover the other eye and look at your finger and your finger will have cared to move, right? Because mm-hmm. you're looking at one object from two separate locations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One eye is at one position, the other eye is at the other position. So mm-hmm. that depth is kind of combining those two images. So, And what you're saying is that if you are trying to focus on something, like let's say your computer screen, and you're mm-hmm. focusing on computer screen, and then now you're looking at a chair that's like across the room. Mm-hmm. So, And then your eye is adjusting. You, you have this lens in your eye that's going to change its focal length, which means like how, where it focuses, right? Yes, that's called accommodation. Right, so you're saying that in VR right now, they can deal with this like your eye being at two different locations, Mm -hmm. you know, they can deal with that and make it look like it has some depth to it, but it's not putting in that second part of the depth of that of the lens inside of your eye changing. Yes, because the image is always on a certain screen and that, mm-hmm. that screen is not moving. Mm-hmm. So your brain thinks, I don't have matching information. The mm-hmm. brain thinks you're poisoned and the brain makes you feel dizzy because it's a body reflex that to make you puke out or whatever it, it thinks is poisoning you. Right. So that's why a lot of people feel dizziness when you are there using VR system. And my project is trying to design this tunable lens. So instead of projecting image onto a plane screen we are trying to project image every single pixel of the image into a 3d space Mm. right into your eye so your eye is forced to accommodate to the image at different points at different distance from your your lens so that's forcing the brain to have both parallax and accommodate i love that you said that because i have heard reports of people not really liking vr because it does trigger their motion sickness Mm -hmm. and like you were saying the body feels like it's being poisoned so it's it starts to get dizzy and want to throw up whatever poison that is yeah motion sickness is actually the body trying to protect you right it's being very smart We now go to the exhibitor and artist floor where we talk to Amy Ray Hill about her art and how it's inspired by science. We're at Geek Girl Con in Artist Alley. My daughter and I actually come to Artist Alley every year and do a commission. I don't know where she is right now, but we're gonna get one. I'm at Amy Ray Hill Arts at your booth and it's beautiful. And I just see a ton of cups with the moon on it. How did you get into painting astronomical objects Oh, man. On all of these cups, dishes, they're beautiful. 
Oh man, so many different avenues. Like I've always loved sci-fi stories in movies and other books that I've read and games that I've played. I also kind of like it as a metaphor of confronting change and confronting like new worlds, new possibilities that happen. So I think just like a combination of all those interests came together and the pottery element of it came from working at a pottery studio. So it all just like fused into one thing. And you actually went to Western, you just said that. I so, did, yes. Um, and, and so like, did you start doing pottery at Western? No, actually I was doing like completely different things at Western. I was doing painting, kind of large You're still scale. painting. Yes, I am still <laughs> painting. <laughs> but now I'm painting ceramics, although I was painting on uh, large scale canvases back in the day. And they weren't related to space at the time. Okay. But I found that interest kind of after Western. So how did you find it? I think it just kind of came together at a perfect point where I was playing a game that was about being stranded on a moon and trying to like discover Lifeline. It okay. was a text adventure game. Um, and you've got to help an astronaut kind of find their way around this moon who has no knowledge of exactly what to do in a survival uh, environment, which neither do I. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting to explore that. And then I've also, through like making space art, found a lot of planetary scientists, other astronomers I've met online that have given me a lot of inspiration too. Were you intimidated by the sciences before you started making these friends? I don't know if I would say intimidated, but I guess kind of like I didn't want to go into painting something I wasn't super familiar with. And so it was kind of like they opened a lot of doors to different things I could study for my work and make sure I really knew what I was portraying in my own art. So I think they just kind of inspired my creativity. Can you tell us a story about learning about a science fact that helped your art be more accurate? Let's see. Yeah, I guess like the, the studying, I'm just thinking of brown dwarfs right now was yeah. a good example. Like Give us I, a definition of a brown dwarf. A brown dwarf is a celestial object that is somewhere between like a planet and a star. Yeah, it didn't That's, It didn't quite ignite, right? Yeah, it like, didn't it, quite get there. <laughs> it's, its core has not been fusing helium from hydrogen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so I was looking at it from kind of an artistic point of view and going in and really looking at like the colors of it and kind of realizing wow. as an artist looking at stars, you've got a lot of brighter colors. There's light coming from like the inside of it. And you do have some stars here too. And I really like what you just said that you're painting, you know, stars are emitting their own light versus reflected light. So how do you, how do you do that as an artist? I guess, yeah, that's kind of, that's a tricky one. Yeah. So with something that is not emitting its own light, it's getting light from somewhere else. So you've got to think what direction that light is coming from. So for instance, when I'm painting a moon with, with craters and things like that, I've got to think about which side of the crater is going to have a light spot, which side is going to have a dark shadow and keep that consistent throughout with one like darker side. With a star, it's a little bit less consistent and you might have light around the entire thing and maybe layering it differently. Ooh. So. I might use this. <laughs> you're like, I'm totally interested in this. <laughs> I could go on for yeah. like three hours. Yeah. Um, but that, I might use a sponge to wipe away some color because if you do that, it will look like the light is like coming through the color, I guess. Oh. This is more like adding the shadows on top of the moon. And with a star, it's kind of wiping away layers to make the brightness come through. This is, I mean, <laughs> I find this super fascinating. We, we don't learn this stuff as science majors. We'd like to thank Tori and Jia Yi for taking the time from their busy DIY booths to talk to us. If you'd like to see our guests' amazing work, follow them on Twitter at Amy Ray Hill for Astro Ceramics and for Tori's cosplay at T E R E S H K O V A 2001. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. 
Today's episode was recorded in Seattle, Washington at the Washington State Convention Center during Geek Girl Con 2019. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Aaron Howard. Script support by Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. And if you have a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.